You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm here live on tape in Hollywood in the Netflix offices. If you hear weird noises, that's people making streaming TV as we speak. In a second, we're going to go to Austin, Texas, where I spoke with Brian Stelter. You guys know who Brian is. He's on CNN all the time. He makes an awesome newsletter. He has an awesome podcast. He's been on this podcast before. And truth be told, just between us, he's a really good person to interview because he can just talk and talk and talk and says interesting things. So that is what happened. Let's go hear that now. Hi, guys. I'm Peter Kafka. That's Brian Stelter. Brian, thank you for showing up on short notice. Thanks to you guys for showing up on short notice. Your reward is, if you think I'm doing a crummy job of asking Brian questions, you can oh. do it yourself. We're going to have some Q&A near the end of this. So Great. Think about your best questions for Brian. I could theoretically ask me too. Brian, we yes. spent a lot of time planning this out. The main question was, what are you going to wear? That's are you going to wear a blazer? I said no, and you said, I'm also not going to wear a blazer. That so. is a true story. Actually, I texted you and I asked to try to find out if I could borrow your blazer for an interview, and you said you weren't bringing one. Let's talk more about clothes, bro. Okay, let's, so, so I'll tell you what I did. I rode on my bird scooter, because I really wanted to embrace South By and the cliche of Austin. I rode on my bird scooter to Jose Bank this morning, got myself a big new blazer, just uh, to be here with you. It's an on-demand economy, for real. <laughs> so I got, to, I got to watch some of this. I always wondered how you make the sausage, and I got to see some of it today. I saw you backstage, and you're producing your Sunday show. You are also tweeting like a madman. Um, are you going to um, make content today besides what you do on stage? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make content while we're talking up here, yes. My, my late mentor, David Carr, uh, who uh, taught me the ways of South by Southwest, used to say that what made me different from, from people his generation was that I would consume content and create content at the same time. And I didn't, I didn't understand why that was different, but I, I see it now. Do you think I, he meant that as a compliment? I no, no. <laughs> No. Now that I'm in old age, I, I see what he was talking about. It, it is true that if you've grown up with an iPhone in your hand, you are used to doing both at the same time. And that is fundamentally different from uh, you know, pre-2007, pre-2008. So this all ties together because one of the big questions I have about how you, you do your job and how CNN does its job and how I do my job and, <laughs> and all of us who are writing about media and consuming media and generating media think about is how do we figure out what's important on any given moment, and really what's important in the long run. So today you're scrambling to figure out how to cover Bill Shine's departure on Sunday. Right, right. Um, last, I think it was last week, uh, you had Maggie Haberman on, and she said something to the effect of, 
Everyone gets breathless about every single Trump tweet or Trump revelation. We think we, that everything's a four-alarm fire and thus nothing And is. we have to sort of step back, but you're in a business where literally you're on the air all the time saying, this thing just happened. Uh, let's talk about it. Um, yeah. Twitter is, is incessantly about that. Um, <laughs> how do you balance that desire to go, this thing just happened, it's incredibly important that we talk about it right now, versus let's step back and talk about what's happened for the last two years, or last four years, or right. last several decades. I view President Trump as a front door, meaning he's a way into a lot of stories. And, and there's no real way to, to uh, kind of um, avoid that uh, in this, in this, uh, tele, you know, this, this Trump age. He is generating so much news. But he's a front door, and once you're in that door, and once you have viewers and readers through that door, then you can take them in a lot of different places and go in a lot of interesting directions. Uh, an example being um, one of the trends of the last decade and the decade ahead that, that you and I have both talked about is news deserts. Uh, these, these growing number of communities where there are not local papers or websites picking up uh, the slack, where they're, uh, you know, they're, they're starving for news. Um, I used Trump as a way into that story and covered that during the midterms and got that on TV. And you know, so I, I, you, know, you, you, you basically look for hooks and excuses to cover those bigger stories and those bigger trends. But just to go back to what Maggie said, right? Yeah. And this has been an ongoing thing that was happening in the run-up to the election and then right. after the election. Every single thing Trump said, so crazy, so transgressive. We must talk about it. And then there was a debate on, is he doing it intentionally? Um, and there's a bigger bit, do we cover this stuff at all? And when do we cover what the president says? And if he just said something on Twitter, is that a presidential statement? And if, if the aides are saying later, well, he didn't really mean that. Um, what is the role of a, of a responsible journalist in sorting all of this stuff out on the fly? Mm -hmm. On the fly, it's very difficult, right? If he's tweeting at 10.30 in the morning, and we're on at 11 a.m. Eastern time, uh, we are gonna have to report what's new, and, and what's new is what he's said most recently, and, uh, and why it matters. Uh, I what think if it doesn't matter? To... What if you say, say, look, it's literally just something he tweeted, yeah. and by the way, he's not gonna do it, and it's not meaningful, um, and so I know that he's the president, that context, but let's think about it. Then we need to say, the president, once again, he's making a silly threat that he's not gonna follow through on. Uh, it, 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 here's what he said, here's why it matters, next topic. Uh, I agree with you that we should not get too bogged down in any individual tweet, but the, the issue with uh, not treating everything like a four-alarm fire is that there are a lot of fires. Uh, there are a lot of three-alarm fires. Uh, we can't ignore the smoke and we can't ignore the flames. And, uh, you know, so I, I strongly defend covering the tweets as news because they are news. Uh, that said, I do think newsrooms have figured out a much better way than two years ago. I mean, two years ago, I and a lot of other people were overreacting to every individual tweet from the president. Uh, now, you know, there's days where I look and he said something two days ago, I never even knew he tweeted it, right? Uh, I, I, I do think there's been a, a much better adjustment in newsrooms in the past year about when to take these tweets really seriously and when to just mention them and move on. Because one of the counter arguments is we've become numb to this idea that the leader of the free world is, is saying crazy shit. I don't think most people have gotten numb to it. I, I think most people have accepted it as part of their you know, a part of their environment and have made up their mind. There was a new poll uh, from Hofstra this week showing that you know, seven out of 10 Americans have made up their mind about Trump. They don't think any new information will change their mind about what they think of him. Obviously, most Americans have decided uh, that he's a liar, uh, that he can't be trusted, uh, that he's not doing a good job. And then there is a subset of Americans, about four in 10, who are proud of him and excited about him. Uh, of that subset, half are really excited. The others are okay with him, mildly excited. And I don't see that changing. Uh, I think what the more interesting story now is uh, the Democratic race. And you know, as, as much as I wish elections didn't last two years, 
I'm glad that there's something, there, there's a new story to cover. Because the Trump story isn't that new anymore, is it? The revelations, we're going to have revelations for years and years and years about what's going on inside the White House. Yep. Witnessed this week in The New Yorker and the reporting by Gary Cohn. We're going to be learning for probably decades about what's really been going on inside the White House. But it's not fundamentally a new story anymore. Jay Rosen, super smart NYU uh, journalism professor, uh, talked with him a, bit, a little while ago and said, I'm really concerned about the way the Democratic race is going to be covered, which mm. is that every time we have a, a new election cycle come up, we always say, we shouldn't cover the horse race, the who's ahead, the, uh, the, the sort of insider baseball stuff. Yeah. Um, we should do the big issues. Um, I, I'm fearful of this exact same thing is going to happen again. Are you guys having that discussion internally at CNN about how you might cover this election differently, and not just because there's 20 people, but really thinking through how you're going to deliver what's important about what they're doing and saying versus the day-to-day minutiae. Yes, and I think that uh, as a media reporter, I feel like one of my roles in the next two years is going to be to keep dragging the conversation back to policy and encouraging more policy and issue-based coverage. Uh, I think a lot of other people, including Jay Rosen, are encouraging the same. But I think most importantly, newsroom leaders are encouraging the same. Uh, I think the top executives at not just the CNNs, but also the NBCs and the New York Times is, and the Posts are encouraging that. Uh, and I don't think that's, it's not that issues were ignored in 2016, they weren't. Big issues were on the table. And the Trump campaign was, was about some big issues, including immigration. But I think uh, newsrooms are refocusing on how to make, make sure the debates are about, uh, not debates in the literal sense, to make sure the next two years are about policy and less so about insults, right? If, if we had to choose between covering insults and issues, yeah. you know, it's an easy choice. Can you show an example of that where someone said, we're gonna rush out with this story because this thing just happened and someone said, whoa, whoa, tap the brakes. Let's, that's actually, that's incremental stuff or that is a horse race story, let's not do it. I don't know, I'm looking around thinking I probably shouldn't share it, but uh, right after New Year's, uh, right after New Year's, uh, a bunch of the anchors at CNN woke up to an email from Jeff Zucker, who's the head of CNN, uh, who sent out a note saying, "You're looking forward to the year ahead. You know, thinking about what are the big stories going to be. We know the Democratic primary is going to be a huge story." The message of his email, uh, which I, I then uh, printed out because I, I was so grateful, he said this to, to the whole the whole team at CNN was, uh, "Cover the policy, cover the policy." The, 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 I, he didn't say this out loud, but the, 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 what I took away was, "Don't be afraid." of getting really into it on the issues and really deep on the policy. Because sometimes in TV, you think about TV news, you think about the 60-second packages that run on the nightly news. You, there is no time in a 60-second package to try to explain policy. Uh, and his message was, go further. Go deeper than that. Don't be afraid of that. And, uh, and, and so I thought that was a really important message at the start of the year, before even a lot of the Dems entered the race, uh, to make it about the issues. And, and so you know, I go back to that memo from the start of the year, you know, it, by the way, I, I can't think of, I mean, he doesn't do that very often. I can't think of other memos like that. It was a great sort of moment to say, if I'm not sure how to focus my show on a Sunday, if I'm trying to pick between two I've topics. I've got this signpost saying go this know, direction. Rem- yeah, remember, remember his words. I thought that was really vi- uh, valuable. That said, it's a 20-person race or whatever, an event. there is a real story about who's ahead and who's behind. This is my pushback to Jay Rosen. I, I think it's, it's important, though, not to let isn't. Trump or Republicans define the Democratic primary. And, and that's where I, my head's at about as a media reporter. I'm looking for examples of people doing that right and people doing that wrong. I think if, if reporters frame the Democratic primary as, uh, you know, President Trump's insult about Elizabeth Warren, you know, dominating the headline that day, that's going to be a problem. But it's also, it's, not a, it's a problem for the Democrats more so than the press. It's ultimately about these candidates and how they choose to communicate. Uh, if, right now, a lot of them are not making it about Trump. 
One result of the Jane Mayer story, which we're going to talk about a little later as well, was that uh, the DNC said, actually, we're, we're not going to bother uh, working with Fox this time around. Right. Um, there's some teeth gnashing and some let's go for it. Where do you come down on that? I'm surprised that anyone's surprised. Uh, I didn't understand why anybody at Fox would think the Democrats would debate on Fox. And I've, and I've had some of these conversations privately with people at Fox who disagree, obviously. The entire Fox primetime lineup exists to destroy Democrats. The network um, primetime lineup is more anti-Dem than it is pro-Trump. The more you watch it, the more obvious this is. When bad news happens about President Trump, when there are bad headlines about Trump, as there are many days, Tucker Carlson chooses to focus on Democrats instead because yep. it's more palatable to his audience. It is an anti-democratic primetime lineup. The Fox and Friends Morning Show is an anti-democratic show. I didn't understand why Fox would ever think it would get a debate in that environment. In theory, though, if you're the DNC, you'd like some percentage, you imagine it's a small one, of people who watch Fox to maybe vote for one of these candidates in a year. I think right? the Democrats... Are you saying that yeah. literally everyone who watches Fox News is now an unpersuadable voter? They're just a lost cause? Uh, I, I think... Uh, no, I'm not saying every Fox voter, viewer is unpersuadable. Some Fox viewers are unpersuadable. But uh, I didn't understand why anyone would expect the DNC to lend its credibility to a channel that demonizes the Democrats every night and that that is the... Identif that's the, you know... This is the pro you know, challenge for Fox journalists, right? Fox is two beasts in a single animal. It's two species, sorry. Two species in a single beast. There is a news division, but it's shrinking, meaning it has fewer hours on the air than it used to and uh, less uh, prominence. The opinion division is growing. The opinion division is what it's defined by. There's not quite another outlet in America quite like that, right? Because, by the way, the Fox people will say, oh, this is like MSNBC, and they're, they're partisan, and we're partisan, and we have entertainment and opinion, and they do, and they have news, and we have news. But they're not the same beast at all. They're not the same beast at all. And, you know, other than encouraging people to watch as much of it as possible to see that, I don't know how I can convince people otherwise. Uh, you know, I don't want to make it personal because I don't care much about the insults that they, they throw at me. But Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, and the others, you know, they like to call me lots of names. Try to find an MSNBC host that delights in name-calling in that way. Not about me, but about anybody. They're, they're different species, and, uh, and, that, and that's a fact. I do want to ask about the name-calling. You, no, you, you get called a lot of names. Um, other people on CNN get called a lot of names by the folks on Fox, by It's just interesting that they politics. choose to live their lives that way. Like, all of us as members of the media, whether you're a journalist or whether you're a commentator, you have to be proud of what you're doing. You but know, it clearly you want, bothers you because you just brought it up well, without me even asking. Uh, it's because I had a reporter ask me for a comment 15 minutes ago about <laughs> Tucker's latest insult. You know, I want to be able to look back in 10 years and be proud of my performance and my coverage and my commentary at this time. And maybe he'll be proud. Maybe those hosts will be proud uh, of their insults and their, and their attacks and their hates, you know, but... I, I don't know if they will be. Do you over-index in, 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 in insults from media people and Republican Well, I think it's people? because I cover Fox that Fox News has a particular tendency to talk about me. It, you know, it's fine. It, most of it's funny. Um, <laughs> uh, but there are moments where I wonder, you know, is that, is that a service to their viewers? How, I think how, fundamentally how you... it's a disservice to your audience to, uh, to focus on that kind of fight as opposed to covering the news. You're also very public, though, right? In addition to literally being on TV and writing about TV and putting on a newsletter, uh, you, t you tweet about your life. For a while, sure, you were sure. very active on Facebook. I think you pulled back like a year ago, right? You said this is a cesspool. I don't want to go there. 
you Instagram a lot. You're, you're um, because I, I talk to you periodically, but not that much. But I know that you're. You, you're having a second kid, right? We are, okay, yes. And I learned that a from, from a social media post. Yes, and if you have to roll these things out, right, Peter? You have to, you have, to have an Instagram announcement plan when you have a baby nowadays. But you could not, <laughs> right? You could just say, I'm going to be public when I'm professionally paid to be public, and when I'm not, I'm, I'm going to pull back, and I'm going to insulate myself a little bit from that world. Some people live their lives that way. That's true, but I think the, the, that's definitely true, but the, I think the, uh, in the media environment that's been created for us by these social media masters makes it easier to live publicly and to share more. Uh, but why would you want to do that? Why do you do that? I think it's actually a lot more difficult to be private in this environment that's been created for us. It's not that, you know, we sought to live our lives on Facebook, but uh, you, you end up developing a situation where that is the primary tool to share your baby news with the world, right? And thus you have a plan. Uh, but you could, you could do it privately. And I, I remember when Twitter started off, it was, it was a fun thing for me to do. It was also really useful because there were lots of really interesting, smart tech executives and investors who were behaving right. publicly on Twitter. Right. And over time, they either made a big announcement about I'm leaving it or they just stopped doing it. As far as I can tell, they're still very successful. <laughs> um, and by the way, when they or their company or their, one of the portfolio companies has something to say, they, they can go out there, but then, then they retreat back to a private world. And I, I know lots of other media people who said, actually, the time I'm spending on Twitter, it's not useful. I'm not making the thing that I'm paid to be doing, and it's not helping me write a story. Um, I'm going to pull back. I'm going to, I just saw Mark Bergen, a guy I used to work with now at Bloomberg, he says, I'm training myself to tweet once a day. That's Once it. a day. Yeah, you, you see, it seems literally unbelievable to you. I think I want to try it though. That's that's inspiring. I mean, again, you your, I jo your job is to be public, it's to be on air. But I, it's it's hard to imagine that you being on Instagram or Twitter or whatever it is is going to bump up your reliable sources ratings by any significant number, or any 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 number, right? It's you, interesting because a decade ago that was a theory, right? A decade right. ago, when I was working in the New York Times, uh, you you saw some cable news hosts and television stars engaging on social media, believing that it was actually a ratings booster. It, there no, were, there were poor right. journalists being told by their, by their editors, you, you have to push this out on Facebook. Yeah, right? it, and it's not, the, in terms of ratings, I don't think there's a material impact. But there is still a virality that's, that's worthwhile. There's still an engagement that's worthwhile. I find myself thinking a lot about what are those platforms that I can uh, connect with viewers that are not as, um, as much of a sewer as Twitter's become. And, and I find myself wondering, what can, what can newsrooms build? What can media companies build? It's going to allow that interactivity. Because we both know there's a lot of value in being able to engage, especially in real time with viewers and readers, and showing them that I'm, we're real life human beings and not just avatars on television. But Twitter's become such a sewer, Facebook's become such a sewer. And what I mean by that is, you know, if I post something about a program on my wall, the top 10 comments are going to be hateful, uh, whether they're real people or not, whether they're you know, trolls or not. That's not a comfortable place to engage. What can we build that's better than that? I mean, Jane Mayer, uh, as far as I know, doesn't tweet. Yeah. I don't know that Jane Mayer tweets. I don't know if she's on Twitter. I assume she isn't. Uh, she's, quite, but her... she's quite active on Twitter. Okay, there I go. I missed but, it. But, she, but you know, I think we do need to, media companies need to be developing those tools ourselves to have those connections to viewers so that we're not so reliant on the Twitters and Facebooks. Hey, it's Peter again telling you that we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Brian Stelter live on tape from Austin, Texas. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. 
because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. What do you think just in general about that loop between TV and Twitter slash Facebook? Um, we were having this argument backstage about sort of the, the reach of any individual uh, TV news program, right? It's, it's, it's small. It's been getting smaller over the years. Has it? But my Twitter, yeah, sure. And my Twitter and Facebook feed are, again, I have a very specialized Twitter and Facebook feed, but they're, <laughs> they're full of clips of you or Donald Trump or whatever, and they're all TV news. And it sometimes seems like if TV news went away, Twitter and Facebook would go away. I know that's not actually true. Uh, and then there very is a convergence. And yeah. then very often you will say, this thing is trending up on Twitter and Facebook, and that's important by why we, talk, we need to talk right. about it now. And, and right with the, the apex of this is Donald Trump, yeah. who is watching TV and tweeting about it. And right. then we cover his tweets, which are about a TV show, and it goes around <laughs> and around. Sounds really healthy, huh? Yeah. Sounds really healthy. If I could uh, get rid of one thing on the Internet, it would be headlines that say, the internet is talking about this, right? Or the internet's exploding about that. I, you know, it's like, no, it's not. Um, but there is a, a, an inherent value in seeing conversations that are happening in real time. And the best example of the past two years uh, is the day that the Me Too hashtag went viral. That didn't have to happen. There were 10 days between the first Harvey Weinstein story and the Me Too hashtag going viral. Obviously, we, we know that the name had existed for many years, but thanks to the virality of Twitter and Facebook, uh, it's a term that we all now recognize and has, and has shaken the world in a, in a wonderful way. That didn't have to happen, and, and if journalists hadn't uh, uh, seen it and covered it and amplified it, you know, uh, it, it wouldn't have been as visible. So there, there's, there's real value in that. Uh, and I think your point about clips over social is really, really important. Television, I've been at CNN five years now, is so, it can feel so fleeting. It can feel so ephemeral. You're on, and then you're off, and the next show is on, and people... Uh, unless you did something really memorable, might not uh, remember, it, remember it in a, a day. Twitter and Facebook allow those, those segments Yeah, I didn't to see you alive. interviewing Jill Abramson live on, on TV. I right. watched the clip. It's an amazing interview. Have you guys all seen this interview? So social media allows it to live, right? Yeah. It allows that Abramson interview to live and to have a life that's much longer, and that is incredibly valuable. Uh, but I, I, I do think we have a big problem with the comments underneath, I mean, with the ability to, um, to discern, you know, yeah, you know, it, it's, the, it's the fight over comments that's been going on for 20 years on the internet, right? That they're not all created equally. And uh, we've seen some publishers turn off comments entirely. Others let it be a free-for-all. Um, there's more to be done on that. So your, your average, average primetime audience for CNN ballpark is what? You know, any given time, you know, 500, 600, 7,000 people are watching CNN. I think the real power of cable news is in the reach over a week or a month. So over a month, you've got... 55, 60 million people seeing CNN at some point in the month. 50, 55 million people seeing Fox News in a month. You know, there's a narrative sometimes that uh, even the most popular host on cable news, Sean Hannity, Rachel Maddow, only gets 3 million viewers a night. And that's technically true. At any given time, 3 million people are watching them. I think their power, Hannity's power, derives from repetition and being there every night and over time reaching a big audience. You think he's reaching more than those same people, that he doesn't have regular... He obviously has, yes, he has a core audience, but yeah. then he's reaching many more than three million people over the course of a week or a month, 
And you know, ultimately, I think that's what where it gets. Or is it just important because he's helping set an agenda for Donald Trump and various other folks? Or 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 distracting from Trump's scandals and controversies and uh, encouraging people to look in the other direction. It's you know what Hannity does is as simple as saying, "Look over there," right? It's it's as simple as that. If Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg came to you and said, "Look, I can guarantee you we can triple your audience with a streaming live TV thing, and we're going to set up the economics, and we're guaranteed that it's a net positive, and you can either do it as Brian Stelter, or we're going to do a deal with CNN, but that's going to be your primary output. It's going to be on this platform. And by the way, by definition, this thing is global. It reaches way more people than a cable news network ever can. Would that be appealing to you? No, because... Facebook and Twitter don't have the news credibility and the news muscles that are necessary. Uh, it's, you, make, you make all the same stuff. You put, everything that you do now happens, except instead of, I watch it on, on Channel 80 on Spectrum. I'm not sure. 78, nice so, try. 201. I, I turned uh, it off this summer. Uh, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a great channel be, It's going to be over on Twitter. And yeah. we're going we're to have an equivalent of a homepage where we're going to push it out to give you extra reach. I am, a, I am a very small piece of a very big institution. And whatever power I have comes from being a part of that institution. Uh, earlier today, uh, Bill Shine steps down as, press, as a communications director. Uh, my phone rings, it's a control room. Two minutes later, I'm live on CNN around the world. That power is, you know, that, that, I don't everything, see everything you said, you can, all those things could happen. They literally can happen technically. You're just saying you think TV is still more important than those platforms. For what you do. Uh, in this particular case, yes, but it's also about the news muscles that Facebook and Twitter don't have and don't seem to want to have. News muscles means an ability to know what matters most, to set an agenda, to prioritize segments. Look, uh, they, can stream, they can stream live NFL games, right? I mean, they're literally taking someone else's yeah. feed and, and right. bringing it over. Yes. But they could do the same thing with you. They could just say, we're going to, everyone who works at CNN who produces what you do, we're moving the whole thing over. Just technically, we could do it. You know, you're going to end up, uh, you'd be a very bad TV agent, Peter, because yes. this conversation ends up pointing out the, the reality of television news, at least the way I see it. Let me sit back and think about the last three years. Look what happened to Fox News. Bill O'Reilly, gone. Megyn Kelly, left for NBC. Greta Van Susteren, left. What we saw is that Fox didn't miss a beat. The ratings didn't miss a beat. That place is so much bigger than the individual people. And, uh, and I say that because that's the best example of change in cable news in the past few years, but then that lesson applies throughout the business. The Today Show fired the most, um, most uh, what's the best term for Matt Lauer? You know, <laughs> the Today Show fired who we all thought was the biggest star in morning show history on a Wednesday morning, and the Today Show's ratings improved. Yeah, so you're saying we're all replaceable. Peter said it. Fuck. Peter said it. We're both screwed. And, and, but the power of those platforms, the power of that Today Show platform, uh, Facebook and, and Twitter cannot create that. At least not today, tomorrow. M maybe, maybe in 10 years? This is the part but where you're supposed to say, by the way, Peter, you work at Vox Media, and <laughs> Vox and BuzzFeed and Vice all desperately want to be on TV. Uh, if you had, that's true. Uh, if you had said to me 10 years ago, it's 2009, Brian, in 10 years, the nightly newscast in the United States are going to have 20 million viewers a night, I would have laughed at you. I would have said they're about to get canceled. There's not going to be a Lester Holt or a David Muir or a Judy Woodruff. And obviously there is, and those shows are remarkably strong, all things considered. Um, yes, there's an incredible change happening. There's no way to stop the on-demand revolution. 
but I'd argue it's happening a little more slowly than than maybe I would have myself would have guessed ten years ago. Can we just do a poll here, quick, quick, oh, quick don't. audience poll? Who is paying for cable TV in this audience? <laughs> that's a for bigger a number of hands than Peter would have thought. Third? That's pretty good. That's good for you. My belief, and uh, I'm happy, you know, maybe proven wrong. My belief is that the majority of Americans will continue to pay for cable in some form if the cable companies keep making it better and more user friendly. The other day, I tried to watch SNL. I turned on my cable box, I typed in SNL, and my cable box didn't know what I was looking for. And to me, that was really embarrassing for the cable company. If you can't know that I'm looking for SNL Saturday Night Live in 2019, it's a huge problem. Um, but I, I think that if the company's smaller problem, huge problem, because you found it, you I, knew you wanted to watch it. But it was such a burden, Peter. I had to write in the word Saturday. Are you cutting? Are you <laughs> are you cutting the cord? Because I'm not cutting the cord as a result. But I believe that if the companies can make that experience better, do you think the, most people keep paying? Do you think the millennials, the Gen Zs, the whatever the group below them is going to say, "Hey, I heard this cable box got a lot better." I'm paying for pay TV. Well, it now. probably won't be a box, right? It'll yep. probably be, it's, it's streaming on your phone. Yep. It already is streaming on your phone. Uh, but I, I guess count me as old fashioned. Uh, there is a convenience to cable that is also, um, there's also a convenience to Netflix. Let's be clear, you Both grew up, you, grew, you were a teenager writing a cable news TV blog, right? That is true. Okay, that so is true. just to be clear, you're, and you're my a little obsession on the, with TV the, news, outside of the spectrum. That's true, but my obsession with television news came from the, the sense that most of us, you know, we have, a, we have basic needs from media. One of those needs is to be informed. One of those needs is to be, be, be ensured of your safety. And in a situation where you're not safe to get information, there are these kind of basic needs about media and journalism that we forget about when the president attacks the press and calls it the enemy of the people. Uh, look at Alabama the other day uh, and the local stations alerting folks about the tornadoes there. There are those basic services that television and radio provide and the internet provide uh, that aren't going away. And that's partly what interests me about television news still, is that um, CNN has many functions, but one of the functions of CNN is as a hospital. You go there when something bad happens. Uh, we have a lot of other functions too, but those, those functions aren't gonna go away no matter how powerful Facebook or Twitter get. Think I'm wrong? I, think no, so? no, I like, the, I, like, I like the hospital metaphor. I just don't know if I run that business if, that, if, if I'm happy about that. And by the way, this is why, and everyone's, this is a truism we've known for a long time. When there's a war right. or a disaster, your ratings spike across the board. Right, and then the, pro just, the problem right. is when there isn't that, sure. this is the critique of cable news for a very long time, yeah. is that you have to have people sitting around talking in the absence of other news, and then you sort of create stories. But uh, there's prior, there's prior not to a, Trump, we had the poop poop crews, we had the missing Malaysian plane, right? And these things were not crucial. You didn't need to know about them. You certainly didn't okay, know about them. First of all, that's insulting to the people in. that died on that plane. Every day that plane is missing, it's a bigger story. I'll defend the missing plane until the day I disappear on a plane. That is the biggest story in the world. It was an interesting story. Where's the plane, Peter? How it's been many, five years. Yeah, how many other plane we, crashes we can have we debate that then? later. The, the, there is no shortage of news. Um, but I think the thing about the hospital metaphor is that, yeah, you go to the hospital when, you're, when your arm breaks, but you also go to the hospital to stay, stay healthy, right? I, I, I go to the, the version of Mount Sinai for my checkups, for my physicals, right? You go there to stay healthy as well as when you're sick. And, and that's where this misinformation conversation we've been having for the last two years comes into play. Right, the newsrooms in this country, the CNNs of the world, have, have, have such an important role to play in combating misinformation, in combating 
the, to continue the analogy, disease and viruses. You know, it was terrifying to watch the, the role that local news played in promoting the Momo scare two weeks ago, yes. which then showed up in my inbox from my school, Yeah, which is full of really smart people, and they yeah. still said you got to be aware of this thing. Do you guys know about Momo? No, I'm Google not even gonna, it. Google, go it. Google it. Yeah. Um, but a lot, and to be fair, a lot of this stuff was coming from, uh, you know, an agent, uh, an actual government agency in, in Britain, and local police departments in Florida or wherever. Um, and then, so it was easy enough for a local news station to go. Oh, I guess this is a real thing. We got to promote it. But it can go both ways. But the question I ask then is, what's what? What can I do? What can you do? What can Twitter and Facebook and Google do to help folks find high quality information about a scare like that? and to discourage low-quality information. Right? There's so much stuff out there that's not news, but it smells like news, and it tastes like news, and only later does it make you sick. And it's a societal problem that all of us have to help guide folks to that higher-quality version of the news. Well, let's, let's fix that in the next panel. Hey, this is Peter breaking in to tell you that we're taking another break, and we'll be right back, and we're still going to hear from Brian Stelter when we come back. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. You are a former New York Times reporter. You've written a book. You are doing a million different things at, at CNN. And now you are about to be an Apple TV streaming show producer. You've got Consultant. a... Consultant. You, you, they took your book and they're like going to make a TV show. I like to know how the totem pole I am. With Jennifer Aniston. Uh, yeah, so I, I wrote a book about morning TV, top of the morning, and uh, the rights were optioned. Uh, by Media Rest, which is producing a, a morning show drama for Apple. Uh, I was actually on the set yesterday uh, in LA. I was out visiting the, the stage uh, where, it's being, where it's being produced. And that's all I'm allowed to say about that. Uh, womp womp. Um, what's, it, what's it like to be a Big Shot TV producer, even though it's only You'd have to TV, ask the Big Shot TV, TV producers. Uh, but, but what my role has been is to, uh, to, in a very small way, consult with the writers and make the show uh, as real as possible. And um, I cannot wait to see it because I think you all are going to be entertained. Uh, but I can't say any more about what, what the show is. Frankly, Peter, it's, it's been an interesting experience because I don't know how it's going to be released. So you don't know when don't it's going to run? I don't know when. I don't so know this, where. This is not you, can't, you know but can't tell us. I really don't know. In fact, I don't think the producers know. Uh, unless they're, they're not telling me. So March 25th, Apple's going to finally say, here, we've got this thing. That's right. The rumor is that March 25th, Apple's holding their big no, launch event. Yeah, they are doing it, but yeah. Well, I haven't been invited in. It doesn't invited? mean it's a rumor. Okay, it's a rumor. I don't need an invite to make it a rumor. <laughs> that is one of the worst things reporters do, right? You report a fact yeah. from sources. Hate it. And then I say it's a rumor. Yeah. Well, and yes, it's the worst. Because, <laughs> I mean, it's one thing for the PR people, and my apologies to you guys in the room, um, say, we don't report on rumors and speculation in right. response to a question about actual reporting. Right. That's fine. <laughs> but, but it doesn't mean the reporters have to then quote them right. saying this is a rumor. Uh, anyways, but, but it is a mystery. But you don't know. You don't know. You literally don't know when this thing is going to run, who it's going to be available to, whether it's going to be dropped in one's thing or it's going to be rolled out every week. It's, it's, a, it's a mystery, and I can't wait to find out. 
Uh, how do you think that, that, that content is going to work? Do you think it's going to work? Mean? Do you think that will be as effective as a regular TV show released over a regular TV over broadcast or, or cable? Or do you think because it's something digital, it's going to be a niche product like we've been sort of talking back and forth about for the last Well, you, you raise an interesting question that I don't know the answer to, which is will Apple take the Netflix route and choose not to share something that would resemble ratings? And I don't know the answer to that either. Uh, that's an interesting one. But I think what, we, what we're seeing in this day and age is that a show has the ability to be huge regardless of the way it's released. Have you offered the notes? Have you said, look, I know that you guys are professional <laughs> oh, no. TV makers, Jesus, but no. I have some ideas for you. I, uh, no, I have not. Uh, and I don't think that would be ethically appropriate. Uh, the, but you, you just know, want to hang on the set anyway. I get it. Uh, I wanted to see it in action, yes. I wanted to see it come to life. It's remarkable with Netflix to see how... You know, um, you know, we can pick a, pick a recent example, you know, uh, Stranger Things, I guess, is the cliche example now. A show can, can become huge no matter where it's, you know, no matter how it's released. Uh, That's a good thing. There's a New York Post story that says Tim Cook's offering notes for these shows. I, I, there was a New York Post story earlier this week that, said, that claimed Tim Cook was deeply involved in these Apple shows, giving notes and making changes. Yeah. My impression is that is completely bogus. I think it but was again, true I, a couple years ago when they were doing uh, the carpool karaoke stuff. And he was saying, that's not appropriate. We can't run that. There were a couple of those tweaks there. But you don't have any sense that he or Eddie Q sits below him and runs all of media is, is, is winning. My impression is actually the opposite. But again, let's wait and see. Let's see the shows. Do you think there's too much TV? Are we, are we at peak TV? No. No? No, people are watching it. Because people are watching. Yeah, I mean, eventually someone's going to say, we can't support all of this economically. It'll rationalize. Mm. Um, there's plenty of TV for everyone. You can watch literally whatever you want. It's great. Now, back to making Emily upset. Oh, why? Um, Emily is a CNN PR person that Peter wants to pick on. Emily wants why. to make it clear that, that Brian is not a representative of Turner, Warner Media, <laughs> or AT&T. Turner, CNN, and, Turner, and Warner Media owned by AT&T. Right, right. So you happen to work there, though. Yes. And almost every day, there is a story about one of those organizations, either the one you work for directly or all the way up the chain. I can think of three in the last week that are relevant. There's the, uh, the mayor piece we were talking about, which is involving uh, whether or not Donald Trump actually tried to stop the AT&T Time Warner merger. Right. Uh, there's a Kevin Sushihara story. Uh, runs Warner Brothers, your, one of your, your, your corporate cousins. Yeah. Uh, and what am I missing from last week? Oh, yeah, yeah. They, 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 they reorged all of... All of uh, Complete Turner, restructuring of the whole company. Yeah, your boss got a new job. One of your, another one of the folks got left. Richard Plepler left. How do you go about covering stories where you're either directly connected or at least indirectly connected through the corporate ownership? Yeah. One of the greatest things about CNN is that we cover CNN and the rest of the company just like we cover... NBC or Fox. And, and I, can, I can very confidently say that after the last few weeks when there's been all these stories about CNN and Warner Media. And, and so the short answer is the way I do it is uh, write the story, reach out to the PR person, tell them what I'm working on. And usually what I say is something to the effect of anything to add, you know, because I'm not asking whether I'm allowed to publish this. I'm not asking whether you agree with my facts. I'm asking is you have a point of view that doesn't, that's not in my story yet. And that's what we do with Fox. It's what we do with NBC or the New York Times. You know, obviously covering media is inherently uh, meta in a lot of ways, as, as, as you know, just as well as I. Uh, but but I, I have been, um, uh, at every point where I've wondered if I was going to really have autonomy, the answer has been yes. And, and to be honest, the best example was a couple weeks ago. 
The CNN hired uh, Sarah Flores, who was a Justice Department spokeswoman working for Jeff Sessions, working in the Trump administration. Uh, there was a lot of liberal Twitter outrage, but more importantly, there was a lot of concern inside CNN. And this was the first time in five years that I had employees at CNN contacting me as if they were whistleblowers, as if they were sources, wanting to speak out against our company. Hasn't happened to me in five years of CNN. And on that day, uh, I called my editors, I said, I'm gonna have to quote my colleagues anonymously concerned about our new colleague. That's the first time you've had that conversation? It's the first time it's happened because there hadn't been a day like that before. You know, when Corey Lewandowski was hired, you know, uh, he was there to be a commentator. A lot, some people didn't like it, uh, but everybody knew what his job was. In Did the you case have a discussion Sarah, then about how are we going to cover this story about Corey Lewandowski, who's going to be on air? I mean, hour? with my producer, but then we went ahead and did a nine-minute segment about it, so uh, the complete autonomy. But with the case of Sarah, there was confusion about what her job was going to be. Uh, some people were saying she was going to be the political director, not director, the political editor, which she's not. She's one of many editors uh, with, with a role in covering 2020. But because of that confusion, there was a lot of concern. And so we published a story quoting CNN employees concerned about a CNN employee. And, and I, I was greatly relieved and proud that there was a complete autonomy to do that. Have you ever gotten a tap on the shoulder or a note or a call or maybe something passed on indirectly that, that has come down? Your old, old boss, John Martin, I think had told me there were two different times that Jeff Bucus had called down and said, I think one of them was the Malaysia plane or the poop cruise, one of the two, and mm. said, this is a little much. Um, but are you ever aware of any of that coming down your way saying, at least just think about how you're going to cover the Kevin Sushihara story? There, there was one time during the AT&T... Um, lawsuit, the government suing AT&T to block the deal, where um, one, of my, one of my producers remarked, we're going to cover this more aggressively than we otherwise we're gonna would. We're going to lean into it. We're going to cover it more aggressively than otherwise would uh, because of the issue of the perception that it's involving our parent company. And again, I was proud of that, right? It, it, let's let's, let's you know, take it more seriously and cover it more aggressively. Uh, and and that's, that's the only time I can think of that, that that's happened. The uh, funny story, the day the deal is announced, 2016, October 2016, we're about to go into breaking news coverage about the deal happening. Uh, I'm on the phone with uh, Randall Stevenson and Jeff Bukas interviewing them. And, uh, and then the breaking news music starts, and I had to hang up on Randall and Bukas. Sorry, boss to be. Yeah, and, and I was like, oh, I really hope they see that I'm on live TV so they know why I hung up the phone. Uh, it was a little bit embarrassing. Uh, but, you know, the, this has happened in a lot of newsrooms in the last few years. There's been cases that are a lot more interesting than CNNs where you're covering yourselves. And I think networks deserve credit for doing this the right way. NBC went on the Today Show and announced Matt Lauer's firing. CBS uh, reporters were investigating Les Moonves uh, and, and covering the Moonves scandal in real time. Uh, there's, been, there's been some, and, and by the way, when it, when it doesn't, when, it, when a newsroom doesn't cover itself well, I think the audience notices. See, I, I think still, it's visible I, to the viewers. I think it's great that they do it. I still think I'm going to rely on someone outside your organization to do the best job. I just think it can't People be People should seek a lot of out. Seek your a old, lot of your old job of the Times, you guys did a great job covering Jason Blair and things like that. Um, but still, fundamentally, if I want a really good start out with the yeah. inner workings of the New York Times, I'm not going to expect the New York Times to deliver it to me. Which speaks to the idea of a balanced news diet in all cases, about all things. But we should, in newsrooms, be as transparent as the people we cover. Uh, let me put it this way. We expect the people we cover to be transparent. We expect the White House to be transparent. Thus, we should be transparent about ourselves as well. It is funny when you call up a media person and say, I'm reporting something, something, and then they act just like any other person who doesn't want to be covered. 
It's just like they're humans. So Some you, communicators are not great at communicating. Or don't right? want to be. They're just right. regular human beings. Uh, but but I, you know, I try to be self-aware about that myself. And, uh, and I'm always erring on the side of commenting when, uh, when asked. You're very transparent. Stop it. You picked out a name for, the, for, for baby number two? We have a name in mind, and I'm not allowed not to reveal right. it. Right. I will give a hint, though, just for fun. Jamie won't, Jamie won't like this. Uh, my wife won't like this. Here's the hint. Uh, wow, should I give a hint? No. Yeah. Oh, oh, people said no. Okay, wow. right, I won't give a hint. I'm really excited about the name, but I shouldn't say. All right, I won't give a hint. Who has questions for Brian in this audience besides baby name number two? Come on, there's a I'm mic too here. Comfortable with you, two Peter. mics, maybe. Wanting to give away everything. Hi, good, good talk, guys. Um, Brian, I wonder how you cover or address issues around false equivalency. Um, you know, thinking back to yeah. the way maybe Hillary's emails were covered, and you know, maybe now with you know Congresswoman Omar and how that compares to Steve King. It seems like there's almost a conscious effort to equate two very different things. So how do you address that in the newsroom? I think it's a constant conversation, individual conversations that happen every day, as opposed to a top-down view uh, of this. And, and the reason I say that is, I'll take my Sunday show as an example. We start meeting on Wednesday. We start talking about what the Sunday show is going to be, and then it changes 100 times. Thursday morning meeting, Friday morning meeting, Saturday morning meeting. Uh, to come up with Sunday. And in all those conversations, in all those meetings, we're talking about uh, how to frame a, a story, who to book, uh, who to add to the show to create more balance and more, uh, uh, more interest. And uh, I think it's in those meetings, in those daily conversations, where you have to work hard to avoid those false equivalencies. Even in something as simple as a banner that's on screen. I go through the banners at 9 a.m. before our show and, and make sure every banner feels right and feels fair. Uh, because even a banner, you know, you put the wrong words up on screen for 10 seconds, and that's Do you know who agrees with you, supposedly? Donald Trump. That? Donald yeah. Trump, he says these are the people he watching the sound off. He cares a lot off. about the banners, that's the right. The tyrants really matter. It's a screen grab, it's going to live forever, it's going to be used against you, it's going to be used unfairly against your organization. Uh, so I think it's in those daily conversations and in that obsessive checking before air, I, I think it's, you know, the reason I say it's in the daily conversations is because it's really easy to sit up here and say, damn that false equivalency, don't allow it to happen. But really, it's about thousands of individuals every day working hard to make sure uh, that we don't fall in those traps. You know? Right now, the media right now feels like pumped because of ratings and the subscriptions go up in uh, New York Times at the Washington Post. What is your take on uh, the time after Trump? Do you think that will stay the same, or do you think they will go back into those dark ages where nobody really cared or paid for news? I think there are two views of, uh, of post-Trump world, right? One view is things are going to go back to normal. I don't subscribe to that view. I don't know what normal means, and I don't think there is such anything as, as normal. I think he's created such a stir that whatever comes next will be equal, you know, will, will also, you know, I'm, I don't think Do there you is think a people will be as, as engaged in CNN in a post-Trump world as they are right now? I don't buy into the argument that the Trump bump was as significant for cable news uh, or even for the New York Times as others do. Here's why I don't buy into it. Ratings may be up, I'm going to make up numbers here, make up numbers. They may be up 20% from 2015. Let's just play that out. That, that's, so if you credit Trump with that, that suggests that a Hillary Clinton presidency would not be dramatic and interesting and newsworthy. And I disagree with that. Uh, I assume that we would be in impeachment hearings 
uh, if Clinton were president. I assume the Republicans would have found a reason to hold impeachment hearings by now. There would have been plenty of drama and news and excitement and interest and uh, concern. And it would be different, though, right? It would be she different, be but it would be newsworthy. Via Twitter, there wouldn't be that constant sort of transgressive, can you believe that this thing happened? That wouldn't be there. Uh, different, and, but newsworthy. I, and there, there'd there be less been, people worried about sort of the future of the republic and or the world, uh, right? There'd still be a segment of them that would be, I, I, as yes, there were there with Obama and Fox viewers, but that would be the same. There would have been a Clinton bump. I, I, let's, let's say the ratings would have been up 10% as opposed to 20% for that given year or something. Uh, television ratings, newspaper readership, a lot, you know, it, my bosses may not agree with me on this, it's just my personal view. I view it as an ocean. There's a certain water level. And when a storm comes, the water rises. And when a storm fades, the water comes back down. But there's still a, a basic level to the ocean uh, that exists. And, uh, you, you know, I've, I've learned not to read too much into daily or weekly or monthly changes in that ocean level because it's, that's how I view it. We're, By the way, people who sell subscriptions We're like, a, a, we're like a buoy in the middle of the ocean, bouncing up and down. The, I like your metaphors, you're good. The, the Times and Journal and New York Magazine and New Yorker, people who are in the business of selling subscriptions, they all believe there was a Trump bump and they're very concerned about how they keep someone who signed up in the fall of 2016. There was to some degree. I'm yeah. just, I just don't want to overstate the uh -huh. Trump bump. Um, we need to keep making it easier to pay for news so that those folks will stick around. I find it flabbergasting that in 2019 it's still so hard to pay for certain news websites. Uh, and, and look, that's partly on Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and these other bosses, uh, these companies, to make it easier to pay for news. Uh, and, and, and Tim Cook and the others. We've got to keep making it easier to pay so that when I land in Austin, I can pay a dollar for the Austin American Statesman and read it on my phone without the hassles and all the hoops. Come on, Tim Apple, get on it. Yeah, come on, Tim Apple. Hi, Earl Barg, uh, thanks for the session. Chris Christie has uh, complained that uh, Sunday morning talk shows during the Republican primary that uh, Trump was able to phone in, whereas everybody else had to, had to show up. Uh, as president, he'll get a lot of free media, um, but the way CNN covered the rallies, all of that free media, I don't, I think you guys have worn nearly enough sackcloth. I've seen some acknowledgement, but no, uh, no atonement. What can we expect in terms of corrections? Hmm. I think there's been a lot of individual soul searching. I don't know if there's been collective soul searching, but there's been a lot of individual soul searching. The head of CNN uh, commented that there were too many rallies shown live, too much, too raw, you know, from from start to finish uh, during the during the during the 2016 election. Um, but, you know, I think the, the point about Trump calling into shows, I, I think, misplaces the blame a little bit. Um, if Hillary Clinton had been willing to call in every day to CNN and MSNBC uh, and Fox, uh, I think she would have been taken live on the phone as well. And I, I think it's important the Democrats uh, learn from that in the same way the Republican but primary this isn't a matter about logistics, right? It's about entertainment value. It's why... Trump talked for two hours at CPAC, and a lot of that's widely distributed because he, he did all sorts of crazy stuff on stage, right? And if, if Hillary Clinton or whoever ends up in the, whoever the nominee is, right. probably isn't going to come out and hug the flag and do two hours of contemporaneous weirdness, there's um, a lot and it's going to be inherently less interesting. There's a lot of ways to engage an audience without uh, cursing uh -huh. and, uh, or, or inflaming hatred of immigrants. There are a lot of ways to engage an audience. But it's just and inherently less interesting. It's just hard, it's just, it's just a, it's, it's a, it's like a physical equation, right? It's just harder for you guys to push that stuff out because it's But that's not on, that's not on news outlets. That's on candidates. 
Like, uh, I think no, but it, you're not suggesting that they do crazy shit on stage to get airtime. Uh, I'm saying that it's, uh, to be, there's a lot of ways to be newsworthy. That's what I'm saying. There's a lot of ways to be newsworthy. And Trump was newsworthy in a lot of ways, but Bernie Sanders could have found other ways to be newsworthy. Uh, you know, Ted Cruz could have found other ways to be newsworthy without resorting to, uh, you know, hatred of immigrants. These questions seem to be going in a, a thematic arc, and this is one more building <laughs> that, that line of maybe false equivalency in that line. But I'm curious, particularly for female candidates in this next round of the presidential election, how we, and we being you, uh, you know, and, and us as consumers, get away from having four days of coverage around Amy Kobuchar having eating salad with a, a comb as compared to Jared Kushner gets security clearance because right. his father-in-law. The, the, the two are not the same, but the same amount of media attention was given to both. And, it's, and it, particularly for female candidates, it seems like this is heavily tilted towards that. Not likable enough, too aggressive, too pushy, bad boss, uh, eats salad with a comb. That salad story is great. The salad story is great, and that's why a lot of websites made content about it. But I disagree that they were given equal amounts of attention. On Twitter, it can feel, and I experience this every day, on Twitter and Facebook, it can feel like those stories are getting equal amounts of attention. But in newsrooms, 10 times as much attention goes to the Kushner story as it should. Now, maybe in some lower quality media outlets that are uh, either for partisan or for sensational reasons, uh, focusing on silly stories about eating salads and combs, then there's more attention to the, to the salads. In real newsrooms that care about helping people feel more informed about their world, the Kushner story is a much bigger story. And I think, again, it's about how do we help folks get to those higher quality news outlets? From one the, white the guy future, to another, do you, do you feel that there's the, the, the gender bias uh, allegation about the way yeah. you guys cover female candidates is, is legitimate? I think there is some legitimacy. I think there is a, there is a there's real reason to be concerned uh, about how female candidates are covered. And the public has to hold newsrooms accountable for that. And I think what we've seen in the past couple months are great examples of, of, the, of members of the public and advocates holding newsrooms accountable when they feel that there is a bias in the coverage. Um, I think that, that we're going to need, we're gonna, that's vital. You know, that's why we need platforms other than Twitter to hear from the audience so that we're hearing that feedback. I'm sorry. Just as a brief follow-up, what is an effective way to hold a newsroom accountable? Uh, I'll just say what I pay attention to. I read every email from a viewer. I, I read every, uh, I mean, I think email is the primary way that I hear from the audience, uh, although Twitter and Facebook and those tools are also useful. Um, you know, I don't want to speak for every anchor and every journalist, but... I think a lot of folks read those emails and take those emails to heart. I think a lot of folks read those columns, read those media critiques uh, from the Jack Shavers and Margaret Sullivan's of the world and take that content seriously. And it gets to the daily discussions that happen in newsrooms about how to be better. Um, uh, you know, I, I, that's my impression. And just on a personal note, you know, um, I've, on my whiteboard at work, I've started making a tally of the guests I'm having on Sunday, uh, male guests and female guests. Uh, because I think there is a skew sometimes, especially when you're covering media, uh, which is an industry that is led primarily by uh, white men, that uh, we make sure that we're balanced on the air. Um, if we're going to be, you know, the next two years, I think, is largely going to be a story about the Democrats challenging Trump and uh, likely about female candidates ch challenging uh, the president. We've got to make sure that we're uh, capturing that on television. I have that whiteboard in my head. Uh, Do you? Yeah. For your uh, sources. 
No, for, for people I have on the podcast. Uh, right. Sourcing's right. different. The podcast like this is specifically we're doing this in public. Right. Uh, and one of the things I keep bumping into is the people who are still running things most often are men. Um, do you find yourself, as you're programming a show that's going to be on TV, saying, let's actively over-index, and even though we know so-and-so is going to be great on TV, let's make sure we get a woman, or by the way, let's get a woman of color in, in place of that person? The short answer to get more questions is yes. Yes, actively. Thank you. Question? That's a good segue. I've got two teenage daughters at home. We don't have cable at home. They only consume what they want to see. Yeah. So how are you, as a mainstream media outlet, starting to adapt to the fact that there is not a safety or need-to-know outlet for this younger generation that's coming up, how are you going to reach them? Because they're only right now listening to YouTube influencers. Yeah. I think this is why the, the newsrooms, the CNNs of the world, have to keep experimenting on the Instagrams and the Snapchats and the, and the Twitters and the Facebooks and whatever those next are. And I'm, you know, it's way, uh, there, there are people at CNN who are far more effective at this than I am, uh, but that's why we've got to keep uh, being on these platforms and, and not just being on the platforms, but experimenting and trying new ways and, and to see what clicks. I keep thinking about, and this is again, pie in the sky, big blue, what are, what is the, is there going to be a news environment in Fortnite? Is there going to be a way no. in gaming to, but, but, but I, I, not literally. they don't want to be, I, they don't want I understand, that not literally, not but I, for that. play that out, right? Play that out in these virtual spaces. Uh, are there going to be environments for news? If not literally Fortnite, then in other spaces like it. Um, when I log on to my Xbox and I choose what to do, you know, yeah, my worry these is are the this questions is, I'm asking yeah, myself. no, I, I think it's worth asking. I, I think the answer is not going to be reassuring for you or me or most people in this audience because and I think the idea the that people want to yeah. seek out news or need right. to have it right. is not shared by a very large population, and, and they're happy to not get news because they'd rather, I don't want to get into Fortnite minutia, but they'd rather spend their time <laughs> doing that, and unless you're going to give it to them and somehow place it in front of them in a way that they can't not look at it, right. they're not going to go seek it out. Uh, Part of this answer is that news skews older as well. Depressing. Yeah. One last question. Okay, so uh, I've been following. Uh, thank you for a good discussion. I've been following your show for a few years. I think one of the things that I, I really remember well was just after the election, and you reflected on the role of the media, and you asked rhetorically, "Are we failing as um, national news outlets? Are we filling our roles? Are we being too elitist? Uh, are we being too bipartisan?" And, uh, and I'd like to hear your comments now, you know, a year and a half down the road after he's been elected. Have you seen any change in your own network? Have you seen any change in the media landscape uh, at large in, in the U.S.? Yeah. I think, unfortunately, the, sometimes the answers to these questions are, are, are yes to all of the above, right? Because there's, there's more uh, outstanding journalism being produced about the Trump presidency. There's also more... Uh, you know, pick your pick your your terms for it. Uh, whether it's it's pro-Trump propaganda out there, uh, whether it's you know there's a little bit of fear mongering going on from from liberal partisan sites about about uh, the Trump presidency. There's there's more of all of it, right? The, unfortunately, in, in this world, there's more of all of the above, and that that makes the role of, of curators and of of algorithms more important to try to guide folks to the better the, the higher quality stuff. It, what I would say directly uh, about the last two years and whether, whether the press is living up to the, to the challenges in the moment, I look at polling that suggests the public 
wants and needs what we do right now. And uh, I'll, take a, I'll take a poll that shouldn't exist, right? There's a, there, are, there are pollsters that ask a question that is a ridiculous question, but it's an interesting question. Uh, who do you choose, the president or the press? Now, that's a ridiculous question, right? Uh, the, the press is unelected, uh, not a branch of government, et cetera. But if you play out that question just, just for you know, giggles, people choose the press, right? The, the majority of the public, uh, when forced to make that choice, uh, sides with the fourth estate. And I think that's an interesting finding in, in this moment in time. What's the biggest mistake you made during the election, and, and how are you? Not taking you? Bernie Sanders more seriously. Yeah, and so how are you correcting for that? Uh, by, I mean, I'm just, you know, again, one, one small person in a big organization, uh, by being more open-minded and, uh, and, and not, not thinking I know what's going to happen. The mistake I think a lot of journalists made, right, a Democratic primary in 2016 is thinking Hillary was, uh, was going to get the nomination, and she, and she did, uh, but Bernie had to be more strong than, than a lot of people expected. Does that um, mean you're going to make a point? Who's the, who's the mayor? Um, I want to say Blagojevich, but that's the wrong. Pete. Yeah. Mayor Pete. Did I, just I get say the name Pete. right? Did I get it right? He's on uh, CNN's town hall on Sunday night. But are you actively saying, look, the odds are very low. He's going to get any traction, but I'm going to treat him the same way I would like a Kamala Harris. Well, I think that's a that's that's about I think that's a challenge for the leadership of CNN, uh, and I think that's being met. I was really excited to see that uh, Mayor Pete, uh, John Delaney, and Tulsi Gabbard are doing town halls on CNN this Sunday night here in Austin. And the reason I was excited to see that is because Delaney is polling very very low, despite going to every county in Iowa, uh, you know, and yet he's still getting an hour to have a town hall the same way that Kamala Harris did. Uh, same way in 2016, CNN held town halls with the Green Party and Libertarian parties. Uh, that's the right thing. You know, we're not there to be gatekeepers. We're there to, uh, to, to probe and question all the candidates, and that's how it should be. Um, I feel optimistic compared to two years ago about the role of the press in this country in the Trump age. Yes, there's a poison. Yes, he's inflicting a poison, a slow-acting poison with his fake news rhetoric, and some people have been infected by that poison. But most people have not. Most Americans know it's BS. Most Americans have, are seeing through it. And most Americans want and need what the press is doing right now. And I think that's a really healthy, positive thing. I'm trying to be positive at the end here. No, let's, let's I think that's end. a really healthy thing. It didn't have to end up that way two years ago. Let's end on a positive note. So that's a positive note for us to end on. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for your positivity. Thanks to you guys. Thanks. Thanks again to Brian for stepping up on very short notice. That's what we call a mensch in the business uh, and doing that interview with me. It was great. Uh, and also thanks to the folks in the audience who showed up and they asked great questions. I love it when people ask great questions at interviews. It takes the pressure off me. If you, by the way, have good questions for me to ask people I'm interviewing, go ahead and send those to me. Email, Twitter, stand outside, shout, however you want to do it. Uh, thanks again to all of you for listening. Thanks for telling people about it. It is much appreciated. Thanks to Vox Media, who brings sponsors to this podcast so you can hear it for free. Thanks to Joel Robbie, Golda Arthur, Eric Johnson. They edit and produce this show. That's why it sounds awesome. Thanks again. See you next week. <laughs>